Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Is anybody wearing their pajamas? So something interesting happens when we come together like this and we practice all day. Starting when the sun is coming up and finishing as the sun is setting. And um, some parts of the day are hard work. You're asked to sit with a partner and express yourself. And um, you can't fake it. You're asked to put your body and mind into new patterns. And you can't fake it. And then uh, you face yourself. And this is an important practice. Um, it's an important practice for others. You might be aware that some of your patterns of addiction and uh, anxiety and so on are not helpful for you. But sometimes we don't realize how much trouble they cause the people around us. All that energy we're spending being caught up in our addictive patterns, we could be spending taking action in the world because uh, the fish really need you mm-hmm. right now. And um, so do trees and so does your family. And so I thought I'd end today just talking about some very practical ways of taking this practice into daily life. And um, there are really three important principles for taking this practice into daily life and making it a practice of peacemaking. Peacemaking in your body, 
and in your heart and with those closest to you. And then to recognize that everything that makes up what we call human is actually made of non-human elements. Minerals, water, so on. It's hard to actually go into the body and figure out what's human about us. <laughs> and the first principle is not knowing. Not knowing. This means giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others. Not knowing. Is that possible? Is it possible to sit right now with beginner's mind? In the Korean tradition, this is called don't know mind. And I always think of that as donut mind. It's like a big hole in the middle. Not knowing. So this means that um, when we practice sitting, we listen to sounds without deciding about them. We feel the breath without deciding about it. And we sit with uncertainty. And this gives us tremendous security. And that's not a paradox. So you really get to know impermanence, impermanent feelings, impermanent relationships, impermanent body, impermanent earth. And there's security there. Because there's no clinging, not knowing. Because you're not clinging to what? Your view. Do you remember we were talking about that earlier today? That the thing that we're attached to the most is needing to have a viewpoint. What happens if you stop finishing your lover's sentences for them? Have you ever tried this practice? So the first principle of taking practice into the world is not knowing. The second principle is bearing witness. You can't bear witness to the nature of things if you know already. Bernie Glassman stopped doing retreats in the Zendo and started taking people to Auschwitz and sitting on the railroad tracks in Auschwitz, outside the gas chambers, and sitting there for ten days. And someone said to him, why, why go to Auschwitz? And he said, because all my life I grew up knowing about the Holocaust and wanting... Um, to understand it and so on, reading about it. And then one day I realized, there's no way I can understand what happened. How is it possible that so many people were murdered by so many people? How is that possible? And so he realized that the only way to know 
is to go sit on those railroad tracks in silence and bear witness, not knowing, giving up your fixed ideas and just watching. And then they went to Berlin the year after and sat outside the heroin parks and just watched. And now he teaches retreats where you go out into the streets for four days with no money, no place to stay, no food, and you walk around your city for four days and just bear witness and look around. This is your community without rushing and without having any money. And then you see the shadow of your city. And people find unexpected forms of love in that. Bearing witness. Bearing witness to the suffering of others. Suffering with them. Compassion. Calm means together, like community. Pathos means to suffer, to suffer together. Being compassion. I know you're suffering. We talked earlier today about somebody who's witnessed very profound suicides. And that person knows something about suffering. You know something about suffering. And so now you know how to work with your suffering. That's what this practice is. If you want to know about your next life, you're not going to find out in this practice. This practice is about bringing your suffering to an end in this life. It's not about much else. Sometimes people would go to the Buddha and ask him metaphysical questions. And he'd say, this is not what I teach. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. It's very clear. And the third principle is taking loving action. So, not knowing, bearing witness, and then out of bearing witness, taking loving action. So a woman, some of you know, has a job of performing abortions every day, all week long. And she came to the realization that in her practice of sitting and watching her mind, that performing an abortion is an act of killing. And she realized that her view now is that this is a form of violence. This is a form of killing. And so she goes to work every day and she does her work. And she said, some of you were there, I think. She said, um, people keep saying to me, well, isn't that a paradox? Don't you find it hard to sit in that paradox where you're performing abortions all day long 
and you're practicing not killing in your mind. And she said, when you take each woman on a case-by-case basis, there's no paradox. Mm -hmm. Okay? There's no paradox. Because ethics are not something you do to get enlightened. (laughs) Ethics are just an expression of enlightenment. That's why you can't do ahimsa. You can't be nonviolent. You just are nonviolent. You can't practice it. You see? So we sit and sit, and then once in a while, a student wakes up. And they have an experience of feeling interconnected with all things. And it's unshakable. And then out of that, you go to the teacher and you say, I had this experience of interconnection. And then the teacher will say, well, what are you going to do about it? And then your expression of that experience is yoga, is nonviolence, is intimacy. Does this make sense? So you don't do the yamas to get samadhi. Samadhi expresses itself through the yamas. Mm. You see? Because if we're interconnected, if you are my background, then why would I want to steal from you? You're my background. And I'm your background. So I just want to read a little passage here by my hero, Gary Snyder, called Atomic Dawn. Listen. Not knowing. The day I first climbed Mount St. Helens was August 13th, 1945. Spirit Lake was far from the cities of the valley, and the news came slow. Though the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima August 6th, and the second dropped on Nagasaki August 9th, the photographs didn't appear in the Portland, Oregonian until August 12th. Those papers must have been driven into Spirit Lake on the 13th. Early the morning of the 14th, I walked over the lodge to check the bulletin board. There were whole pages of the paper pinned up, photos of a blasted city from the air, the estimate of 150,000 dead in Hiroshima alone. The American scientist quoted saying, nothing will grow there again for 70 years. The morning sun on my shoulders, the fir forest smell, and the big tree shadows, feet in thin moccasins feeling the ground, and my heart still one with the snow peak mountain at my back. Horrified, blaming scientists and politicians and governments of the world, I swore a vow to myself, something like, by the purity and beauty and permanence of Mount St. Helens, 
I will fight against this cruel, destructive power and those who would seek to use it for all of my life. So this is non-attachment. Do you understand how this is non-attachment? You see, because non-attachment means action. So you sit and you watch thoughts coming through the mind, one after another after another, and then you slowly start to see that these aren't even mine. (laughs) Who is thinking these thoughts? They just pass through. I can think about thoughts. But if I sit still, thoughts just come and go. I don't know who's thinking those thoughts. And then slowly what happens over time is we begin to practice non-attachment where thoughts can come and go without getting entangled in them. Feelings can arrive. Anxiety can arrive. Sadness and joy can materialize but they don't refer back to a sense of me. Gary Snyder is out there living on Spirit Lake by Mount St. Helens. Has anybody ever been there before? In Oregon? It's very, very, very beautiful there. And he's one with the snow peak and he sees the picture of Hiroshima. And his first reaction is not personal. It's engagement when I recognize the interdependence of this body and the lake, I'm going to do everything I can to protect the lake. And I'm going to tie myself to the freighters delivering coal on Lake Erie to protect the lake, to protect the water. And somebody else is going to write a poem about it. And somebody else is going to express this interdependence by teaching their children about the quality of water. So we're all going to express interdependence differently. But the expression of your practice is action. And a lot of people come to this practice and think that You have to practice to get something and then you take action. But the action is the practice, you see. Yoga is householder practice. It's householder practice. It's a practice for you. And you express this practice in your household. In what you buy and how you consume, and how you love. (coughs) We talked about how you kill. How do you love? And you love by letting go of your view. Because you can't love somebody. It's not personal. But when you allow somebody to be themselves, then love just shows up. In the absence of greed, generosity just shows up. 
You don't have to practice generosity. You work with your capacity for greed, and in the absence of greed, generosity shows up. You work with your capacity for anger, and in the absence of anger, maitri, friendliness, shows up. Loving kindness. You work with your capacity for distractedness, and in the absence of distractedness, upekshanam shows up. Equanimity. Does this make sense? Not knowing, bearing witness, taking loving action. At the end of the Bhagavad Gita, one, this is my favorite passage in yoga mythology. Arjuna, after so much struggle, and then finally having this awakening experience, turns to Krishna and says, Krishna, why has all this happened to me? Have you ever had this experience? Or like you go through some big transformation and then you think to yourself, why did this happen? <laughs> you know, and then you start a whole new crisis because of that question. <laughs> you know? And Krishna says to Arjuna, the complexity of the conditions that have come together to give rise to this situation that is your life is so complex it's beyond your comprehension. When you have something happening in your life that is unbearable, the complexity of what's gone on for this to happen to you is beyond your comprehension. Why is the wrong question. Why always implies that it's happening to me. And why is always going to give rise to more storytelling? How is this happening? Where is this happening? Where is this sadness? What is this sadness? But not, why is this happening to me? We don't know why about anything. So this is what we mean by not knowing. And then, because you've given up the need to know why, then you can bear witness to what is, what is happening here. And then you can take an appropriate action based on the circumstance. You see? What's the circumstance? Otherwise, you get idealistic. This is a phase of yoga practice, unfortunately, is that you start practicing and then you start buying yoga clothes. Has anybody done this yet? <laughs> and then you start buying like yoga mats, and not just any mats, but like eco mats that are so eco they don't even last for a week. <laughs> and then you start not eating meat. Okay, and then suddenly you can't travel anywhere because, like, you're vegan, 
Mm-hmm. And then people start inviting you to their house for dinner, and like you have to say, no, sorry, I'm vegan, on principle. And then people are like completely offended, and then you can't travel anymore. And then um, you start judging people who eat cheese. <laughs> and then suddenly you have no friends. Okay? You can't go out anymore. You can't go to restaurants. You can't visit friends' houses. You can't travel. You know? And then you have to spend all of your money on Lululemon clothing. And then you are a yogi. Finally. But you've become so inflexible because you're stuck in your view. Because you don't see the empty nature of ethics, that they're conditional. You have to take action. And we live in a culture that's imperfect. So your action is never going to be perfect. Even in yoga asana. So in trikonasana, you take the femur bone and you spin it externally. And then suddenly the tibia has to be turned internally. But then if you go too far, then you've got to work the femur bone again. And you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then somebody tells you that if you just get it right, everything will balance out. But unfortunately, you're aging. (laughs) And so there's no end point to the yoga pose. Okay? But most of us, we're like in downward dog, and when the teacher's not looking, we're looking at our neighbor's downward dog. <laughs> and then we get an idea that if my downward-facing dog could finally be like her downward-facing dog, and then we're stuck in space and time. Because we think that the pose has an end point. Practice does not come prefabricated, you see. So then you start to see that the asana practice is just self-expression. And the self that you're expressing is the ecology of reality in each moment. And so you take Marcia out of there, and you take Melinda out of there, and you take Inya out of there, and you take Stephanie out of there. And then the yoga pose is the nature of reality expressing itself the only way it can in that pattern. But it's not possible when you stick Angela in there. Because nothing about experience refers back to an Angela. Angela is a superimposition on what's actually occurring. It's just a mental construction. But go deep in the pose and there's just what's happening. You don't need to refer it back to me. Does this make sense? And then you can take loving action. Because somebody comes to you and says, I'm really suffering. And you can listen to them. Because you know how to work with suffering. And you may not have had the pain that they've had, but you know how to work with the suffering component the clinging and the wanting and the desire to get out of our experience.
Does anybody have any thoughts or um, anything they want to share before we call it a day? I kind of just want to inquire more into the yoga practice, which is the bodily practice, mm-hmm. and um, how that extends. That that experience <coughs> is very kind of local and, you know, uh-huh. quotidian in its own way. Mm-hmm. How does that then, how do you stretch that yes. to the bigger experience? Yes the world around. If you could talk about yeah. that. Well, Patanjali is very clear about this. He says, you take the asana and you experience it with stira and sukha, with steadiness and with ease. Non-obsessive practice. No huffing and puffing. No like no posturing (laughs) with steadiness and with ease and most people read the Yoga Sutra and that's all they think he says but then he goes on and he says when you enter the asana with steadiness and ease then the dvandavas the play of opposites in the mind come to an end okay so what this means physically and psychologically is that you're in a pose. What's a pose that someone had a hard time with today? Heron? Is that? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Our favorite pose, Bakasana. So you're in Bakasana, and it's like, you know, my hips are so big, how could I ever lift them up above my head? I'm so fat, and I'm so glad I'm on the retreat because Ben's making light food. Maybe I could keep this up all week. And uh, she's so light, she can practice this. This pose is for young people or like Indian boys with long arms or something. And maybe I should stick with crochet or whatever. Croquet. Or something. Yeah. And uh, But when there's steadiness and ease, not so much effort. Then he says, effort relaxes, coalescence arises, and concentration occurs to the point that instead of looking at the arm, we feel the nature of the arm in this pattern, and that's a materialization of reality in this moment. We don't need to get anywhere. We're exploring the heron pattern. You see? Without attachment or aversion, just exploring the heron pattern with steadiness and ease. And then it's no longer me practicing with this arm. There's just what's being felt. A rotation here, heat there, negative sensation, positive sensation. You drop into feeling and become a heron. You see? Because all the middle poses in the sequences are all named after animals. And you become these animals, you see. And then the opposites stop. Okay? This is a homework assignment for you this week. Okay? See if you can go through a whole week without making opposites. Without de- deciding things in terms of opposites. Okay? And then he says... 
And when you relate to the body without making opposites, then the body and the universe are indivisible. Because it's not your body. A lot of us in, the, in our mindfulness practice has explored this before, where if you close your eyes and feel sensations, you realize they're not happening in a body. They're just happening in awareness. But the mind is saying, oh, this is in a body. But if you can't see the body and you're sitting still, we see that the body is actually a mental construct. And we imagine the sensations are happening in the body, but in felt experience, they're not. They're just happening. Does this make sense? And this is how we approach asana. And then the mind is involved in the process. So it's not just geometry, but when you're in a class and Melinda or Angela or Bonit are giving you instruction, those are meditation instructions. Concentrate. And if you go deep into that, the separation of a me doing the pose falls away. Or, yeah, the separation falls away. And what's revealed is no opposites. Just what's happening. No separation. And then you become time. Being time. Time unfolding. The only way it can is Tita. And then the byproduct is kindness. Because I've been taken out of my viewpoint. And then my viewpoint. And then I can take in you. Because I'm not filtering you through my viewpoint. Because I'm used to it being traumatized. Interrupted now. Spiritual practice is just clever ways of traumatizing the ego <laughs> in hopefully a kind of elegant way. And then every once in a while, someone in your community tells you, hey, I've noticed a real tenderness in how you've been lately. It's lovely hanging out with you. Or someone else, like Sherry, says, you know, you're really being a bitch off the cushion. She's going to write a book about this. <laughs> Was that what, what did you say? I, this is getting into a mythology. <laughs> if I do so well on the cushion, why am I such a bitch when I'm off? <laughs> so, to conclude, um, your family really needs you. And the people you live with need you to practice. Um, your kids really need you to practice. So maybe for a while, if you can just give up the conception that this practice is about your enlightenment, it would be very helpful. 
because we're not living at a time where your enlightenment is needed. You see, this is not about your transcendence. This is about imminence. This is about a practice where the only thing you transcend is your viewpoint. You see, we're not trying to get anywhere. We're in a time right now where the fish need us too much for us to get somewhere else. We need to become really, really, really materialistic so that we start to love everything that's material and we start to take care of it and we start changing our patterns of architecture. Did you know that the occupation with the least number of women is architecture. Mm-hmm. Of course you know that. Look around. Mm-hmm. Except for here. A great woman was behind this ceiling. The buildings need you. So if you practice, you can start to work with all that energy you're spending worrying and, what did Pat say, planning. (laughs) Planning. Purchasing things. And you don't need anything to practice. You've got it all right now. You don't need anything more to practice. You see, you have everything you need to practice. Your health? You have your health? You have safety? You have just enough leisure time? And you have a community. It's a pretty good start men and women gathered together here where the women are not illiterate, where we can cut through some of the class structure that killed yoga in India and took it out of the household. And now yoga is alive again. But the present moment is not in India. It's always here. Yoga is not in Japan, in a monastery. Yoga is here. This is it. Get to know the trees. Love them. So let's finish chanting. In English, for a change. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. 
Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. Namaste. Namaste.